This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. We have had another dramatic day in Israeli politics. Dramas become quite ubiquitous in our neck of the woods. Uh, not entirely disconnected, a long overdue conversation about the influence and significance of Netanyahu Jr., Yair Netanyahu. And Jonathan has some top secret uh, documents to hide in the shower, so we should be brief and uh, cut to the chase. It's unholy. I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. Unholy two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Um, so much news. And in fact, one of those weird moments where the news in three different countries seems to sort of converge and there's to be a common theme. And I'm thinking that in since you and I last spoke, we've had uh, the court appearance of Donald Trump and the full indictment, 37, 38 counts, in which revelations, as you nodded to, that he was keeping highly classified documents, even in the shower at Mar-a-Lago in London, a former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, quitting Parliament, more or less saying that he'd been forced out after details which we've only just now got from a committee of Parliament showing how he broke COVID laws uh, during lockdown and then misled or even lied to Parliament about it. And then, as if to complete the trifecta, the three tenors of populism, we've had Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, but in some ways the founding father of this movement, Silvio Berlusconi, his death announced in Italy. Um, it feels as if somehow the news gods are lining up the stars for us here and asking us, inviting us even, to draw some common threads from these uh, three distinct developments. Yeah, I mean, the, definitely all you described happened in the span of three days. And, you know, you can't sort of avoid the thought that Silvio Berlusconi was kind of the Trump before Trump. There was a lot that he invented that then became the playbook for uh, Donald Trump and in a way for Boris Johnson, although I think he's a little bit different in some areas. Not only the fact that Trump and Berlusconi both came from real estate, both understood the importance of media, both sold to their electorate, that kind of subtext that says, I made myself rich, I can make you rich uh, as well, uh, didn't really work in either case. And in Berlusconi's case, really tragically, did not live up to that promise to the uh, Italian people. I, I keep thinking, you know, of that uh, line that Rachel Maddow gave us when she came on the podcast. She said, I'm paraphrasing, don't ever mix buffoonery with stupidity. I mean, in the sense that someone is a buffoon or he acts like a buffoon doesn't mean that he's not a very serious person with a serious agenda. And that's true, you know, I, I think to Berlusconi for sure. And also, uh, I think to Trump in the sense that he has a very clear populist agenda. They're both very similar. Boris Johnson also, although the sexist scandals that uh, revolved around Berlusconi's life and around Trump's life, I think maybe, if I'm not mistaken, a little less. A little less? Mm. Only a little. A little. Um, <laughs> only a little. You know, people still don't know exactly how many children Boris Johnson has Oh, he fathered. admitted to having six. But yeah, that was, a, that um, was you know, he had to be sort of pulled into that direction. He did. And the, uh, but you know, multiple uh, documented affairs and so on. Uh, but so, no sex um, parties in his villa, you know, that he's proud of, that he's proud of, like Berlusconi. 
No, although I think Boris Johnson was a guest at one of those, at the very least. Um, no, I think the buffoonery thing is is significant uh, because the common thread in all three cases is television is one thing. They were all three, in Berlusconi's case, he owned it. Mm-hmm. But for the other two, they made their sort of public profile, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, by being sort of stars on TV for Donald Trump, the apprentice uh, for Boris Johnson, his appearances as a host of a very popular kind of topical quiz show, Have I Got News For You? And being funny. That is a thing which is really often misunderstood. Remember that whole thing about, you know, take do you take him seriously or do you take him literally? And that mm-hmm. some of the commentators Trump, yeah. had erred because they took them literally. I think the problem was that people weren't sure whether you can take politicians who are funny and buffoonish seriously. And we have learned through those three cases, you really should. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, if you, if history is any guide, um, buffoonery is no bar, A, to winning power, but also to doing serious and very unfunny things with power. Yep. I mean, but, you know, Benito Mussolini famously was thought of as buffoonish by commentators outside Italy, in Britain, in America at the time. People thought, how can you be frightened of a guy who's just obviously a clown? Well, we learned that lesson, I think. So the missing name from that list is Benjamin Netanyahu for this reason, which is that there are people who used to say not that Netanyahu was the Israeli Trump, but rather that Trump was the American Netanyahu, that he, of all of these, actually, this particular brand of populism, not the humour, not the mm-hmm. buffoonish personality, he's definitely an exception to that rule, but to the um, populist appeal, the notion of running against elites who are conspiring against the people, of was Netanyahu the first of this quartet, just to mm-hmm. expand our three tenors into now a barbershop quartet, was Netanyahu actually the pioneer because Netanyahu in power in 96. So, you know, he, Berlusconi, both in the mid 90s, but who was the one who crafted the template? You know, I'm not sure who wins that competition, but this was a model that has been in place for 20, 30 years and it's Mm -hmm. still with us. And incredibly, Netanyahu is still actually in office. Let's not forget that Berlusconi also had the many, many legal woes. He was convicted only once for tax fraud, but he also used the, how shall we say this, maneuver of waging a war against the judiciary to sort of turn the attention from his legal woes. I'm still talking about the Italian prime minister, if anyone is confused, but that is definitely another uh, page out of the playbook. We should say something about Berlusconi, if we're already on on that topic, and we are, we, we like to see things through the Jewish lens and occasionally the Israeli lens, he really changed Italy's uh, viewpoint on Israel. Italy was more pro-Palestinian before he came along. He was very pro-Israel. I think he even, he's one of the reasons the Vatican uh, recognized uh, Israel in uh, 1993, if I'm not mistaken. But again, that helped people like Netanyahu to overlook certain things in Berlusconi's uh, uh, sayings. He was quite soft on uh, issues like uh, the history of fascism and quite soft in other areas. He famously once said that his children feel like Jewish families under Hitler's regime because they are persecuted by the justice system. Those those, those were things that many Israelis were willing to overlook for sure because of his very pro-Israeli stance. And that too has become a template in the decades mm-hmm. since. The notion of these very right-wing figures, Viktor Orban in Hungary would be another example, who are, as it were, allowed in their domestic politics to whistle a few of the old uh, anti-Jewish tunes, 
but are nevertheless, you know, in Orban's case about George Soros and so on, but nevertheless, because they're pro-Israel, they're given a bit of a pass. That is one of the features of this kind of brand of populist politics. But yeah, one way or another, three of the biggest figures in that kind of politics in the news, uh, one facing judgment in a Florida court, another fleeing from judgment uh, in Boris Johnson quitting the Commons before he could face the full wrath of the committee that investigated him. And the third, Silvio Berlusconi facing a kind of ultimate judgment in the court on high, perhaps, as you and I speak. Who knows how that works? It's probably funny a little bit. Um, we uh, we do want to move on, though, to discuss uh, someone we've already mentioned on this podcast, also uh, in the middle of his own trial, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and the day and what a day he has had in the Knesset uh, yesterday. Taking a breath here because this might be lengthy, but it, we should say that in Israeli politics, there's always the level of what you see, and then the deeper level of what it means. So before we even go granular on what exactly happened yesterday, I think it's important to set out the two sort of main takeaways. One is that there was an opportunity to calm things down in the Israeli sphere, in the uh, everything that has to do with the judicial overhaul and the protests. There was an opportunity to maybe show that Netanyahu's uh, uh, leaning towards this sort of compromise, that opportunity was not seized yesterday. And the other thing that happened is that Netanyahu seemingly lost, but I'm not actually sure that that is the reality of what happened. So should we go through the little bit, the kind of weeds of what happened yesterday to try and explain uh, to our So on this, you're going to need to walk me through this very, very uh, patiently, because this is an absolute (laughs) thicket of procedure and complexity. But underneath it or through it is a very important and sort of compelling political story. But go on, I'm, I'm all ears for how this procedural drama played out. Right. So let's, let's, first of all, set to the stage on why yesterday uh, mattered. Yesterday was Wednesday. The Knesset was about to vote on representatives who would make up the Judicial Appointments Committee. And again, this was to be an important sign. If Netanyahu agreed to go along with tradition and say, we're going to have one coalition member and one opposition member in that Judicial Appointments Committee, then that would signal to everyone, the protesters and the, the financial sector and the Americans, everyone I'm leading towards compromise. If on the other hand, he had said, you know what? No, no. I want two members from the coalition and no seat for the opposition. That was signaled to the other side. I'm going ahead with this judicial reform. And Netanyahu, being Netanyahu, did what he occasionally does do, which is delay, delay, delay. So his plan, when he realized that his coalition is not with him, and particularly uh, his base in the Likud is not with him, he said, you know what? We are pulling away all of the candidates from the coalition and thus nullifying the vote. And we will delay this for a month. That was what was supposed to happen. This, of course, enraged the opposition. It made the leaders of the protest promise to have a huge demonstration in the evening because Netanyahu was delaying this uh, process. And then something happened. There's always the unexpected because this is a secret ballot, I should remind you. So secret ballots are always tricky. You can't control them. And Tali Gottlieb was one of the more unruly parts of Netanyahu's Likud party. She's a member of Knesset, by the way, just teasing our next conversation very close in proximity to Yair Netanyahu. She decided that she will not uh, pull her candidacy. The vote had to continue. And in that vote, she lost. And member of opposition, Karine Helharar from Yesh Atid, from Yair Lapid's party, won. The fact that she won means that there were at least a few 
coalition members who voted for the opposition. So that is important because now whatever the makeup of the, the, the Judicial Appointments Committee will be, it has an opposition member. So it looked like that's a now lost, right? He couldn't control his coalition. He had a member of opposition win. But I want you to notice what the alternative was. Again, because if Netanyahu, again, had went for the decision to go to some sort of compromise, he would have enraged his own base. If he had done the opposite, he would have enraged the protest. Now, what happened was, A, he managed to delay because the vote will delay anyway. There's no coalition member elected because Tali Gottlieb lost. And he sort of lulled the opposition because, of course, they said, you know what, we are freezing the discussions and negotiations in the president's house. But actually, there's not a great reason to now go up out in the streets because the opposition actually won. I'm not sure I made anything completely clear here, but the situation is what Netanyahu, at the end of the day, he doesn't look good. It's a humiliating vote for him. But he he won the most important game for him these days, which is political survival. And that is, yeah. I think, the, the, the bottom line. If, if it was about buying some time, mm-hmm. uh, he bought some time, maybe not in the way he planned or wanted, but uh, he comes out of it to live to fight another day. And this will come back, I think, in 30 days time or so mm-hmm. um, for another round. So yeah, he lives to that one. I'm fascinated by the secret ballot and who those people were and what mm-hmm. their motives were. You and I um, have talked about this obviously since the start of the year. And one of the questions I uh, periodically put to you is are there some dissenters, some liberal rebels, liberal in huge quotation marks, within the ranks of the Likud and the governing coalition who don't like the idea of this judicial coup, as the protesters have always called it. And we got close to understanding who those three or four people might be when, for example, the defence minister was sacked and then unsacked. And Mm -hmm. there were two or three voices who emerged to say, well, this has probably gone too far. Those people who called for a pause. Is it safe to assume that the people who furtively, uh, secretly from behind the curtain in that little Knesset polling booth, voted for a member of the opposition to be on the Judicial Committee? Is it fair to assume those people are as it were, relatively more liberal, who are worried by these judicial reforms and wanted the the restraints of the old system to survive? Or were they playing some weird double game and they're actually people on the right who somehow wanted to undermine Netanyahu? You tell me, but I'm interested to know if we are just beginning to see that faction that could be the difference between these judicial reforms ever going through, even in some new reduced form in a year or two's time. Well, lucky for you. Channel 12 actually spoke anonymously to one of the people who voted with the opposition. And he said, uh, he or she, I will say, uh, that they voted to save Netanyahu from the hardliners like Justice Minister Yariv Levine, because if Netanyahu's plan had worked, uh, i.e. to nullify the whole vote without an opposition, without a win for the opposition, then the furious, spontaneous protest that started after Netanyahu fired Gallant would happen again. So this is someone who actually kind of saw played a, a little bit of a game and said, wait a minute, if we don't give the opposition a win, then what we're going to see is uh, reignite, the protest reignited, etc. But that's one reason. I don't have all of the reasons. But it's safe to say, again, because it's a secret ballot, that this was not totally under Netanyahu's control. Again, as I say, the bottom line is 
There's another 30 days. A lot can happen. A lot of plates are in the air. There's a, a vote for the Israeli Bar Association. Someone can be voted in. And this, of course, affects the makeup of the committee in the Knesset. Someone can be voted in. That's pro-Netanyahu. You know, so all of this, this is a very classic Netanyahu maneuver. We should say, after saying all this, two things. First of all, a day before this decision uh, was made by him, it was leaked that the uh, Biden presidency, the Biden administration, is inviting President Herzog to Washington and not Netanyahu, yet uh, not receiving the invite. I'm, I, I assume that also maybe had some sort of effect on his appetite to go through uh, with some sort of compromise. And again, as much as we say that Netanyahu saved his position for another month, the general public sentiment is this in this country is shut it down. We don't want to hear about the judicial overhaul anymore. We want some sort of compromise. We don't want protests in the street anymore. And this is going against that because it didn't shut down the, the judicial overhaul. It's just keeping it alive for another month at least. Yeah. And we should just, in closing on this topic, we should just mention the other player in the drama, which are the street protesters. And they were coming out again on the eve of this vote as if to just give a little reminder, mm -hmm. we haven't gone away. There's some pressure from that direction as well, not in the huge numbers or anything, but as a, as a kind of just a little, you know, raising their hand and doing a little wave saying we're over here. If this doesn't go the right way, we are ready to mass on the streets yet again for another week. Um, and that, I'm talking of, you know, events outside the Knesset that are still obviously making the weather. And I know we're going to get into this much more in a future episode, but uh, some news that is is troubling. Yes, um, we, we should talk about, and as you said, we're going to uh, uh, flesh this out in uh, an upcoming episode, but the Arab community in Israel, there's a wave of violence. We have mentioned this on occasion, more than 100, 102 people uh, murdered since the beginning of the year. That is three times as many if you compare it to last year. It's uh, people who are murdered in gang violence. In a way, I think it's it's maybe more accurate to call it clan violence. It's a very big families in the Arab-Israeli community. Last week on Friday, after we recorded our episode, there was uh, five dead murdered in a car wash in Yafia in the northern part of Israel. That's a massacre, really. There's not a different word for that. There is a teenager called Sarit Ahmed who was murdered, and the police suspect her brothers. She was part of the LGBTQ community. And this is, I mean, these are all tragedies. This is also a story about the police that is completely, and it's an inability, not enough resources, not enough people to deal with this. Weapons coming into the Arab community from the military and from the West Bank. So this is a whole big story. And of course, if you add to that the fact that the minister responsible for this, the minister of police is someone who, you know, first of all, for large parts of his life was actually under police investigation, but maybe more importantly to this topic and more relevant, he's also someone who had for many years the anti-Arab rhetoric. I don't know how much the Arab community can trust this sort of uh, makeup of the police department, whoever's responsible, but still, it's a very big tragedy in Israel. It's not being dealt with seriously enough. It's a, it's a problem that didn't start with the Netanyahu government. It obviously started, it started a lot before, but we're seeing the terrible uh, manifestations of it now. Yeah, as you say, we will get into that in a future episode. It certainly merits it, obviously, for the impact it's having on the lives of these uh, citizens of Israel, but also the politics of it with Itamar Ben-Gvir as the relevant minister with this huge profile of, and in fact, rec you know, convictions mm -hmm. uh, for incitement against Israel's Arab community. So this is a live issue. It may well be the issue that indeed propelled him into the position of power he now has. So we will 
return to that. But we should uh, get to our guest for this week um, and and its subject. The uh, issue of the Prime Minister's son is one of the most radioactive issues in Israeli politics. And our guest is somebody who I think it's fair to say does not hold back. He is not on the one hand on the other merchant. He is somebody who has a very clear and uh, unabashed view of this very toxic topic. Chaim Levinson is a journalist at Haaretz. He's also a radio host and a commentator on television. He's covered politics, uh, the West Bank, the ultra-Orthodox community, broken stories on NSO and election fraud and many, many others. And recently he's been writing long-form pieces. He has this ability, we should say, to connect between politics and culture and history and pop culture in a way that makes you think. You don't always agree, but it always makes you think. And he's sitting right next to me, so I'm not going to embarrass him. But we're very glad to talk to him today. And we wanted him to specifically focus on a character he has been uh, following very closely, and that is Yair Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu's son. And we want to talk about his influence and importance in the Israeli political scene. So Chaim, thank you very much for joining us on Unholy, finally. <laughs> thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Nathan. Now I'm curious. What piece I wrote that it didn't agree with? Oh, I can't go into that ah, now. We okay. don't have enough time. I we don't have that. enough time to go into that. <laughs> so let's start by talking about, you know what, about why are we talking about Yair Netanyahu? When did the prime minister's son move, shift from being gossip into a newsworthy story? I think it's a newsworthy story because he's the most important figure in the Israeli populist movement. I think he is maybe the establishment of the Israeli populist movement, he shifted Netanyahu from mainstream center to deep into the right wing. And we see the Israeli political crisis that is orchestrated by Yair Netanyahu. It's Israel political crisis is not a political crisis. It's a social crisis between right and left. And uh, Yair Netanyahu is uh, the head of the forces that thinking that we need to fight the left, not uh, have an agreement with the left. And uh, the judicial reform is our way to bring uh, the right wing uh, values back. And we don't need to uh, agree with anything in the left. We need to defeat them. So I think it's the most important figure. And we see his influence all the way and, and appointments and firing ministers and the way this government is going. So Chaim, just calling in the most important person already invites a question, which is, this is a person who does not hold any public office. He's not elected. He's not a member of the Knesset. He doesn't have a ministerial portfolio. What is the basis of evidence in a way that isn't just gossip from the court of the king that proves this person's significance? Jonathan, you know the cliche of the real estate, the most important thing is location, location, location. <laughs> he has a prime location in the prime minister's uh, house and the second floor. It's, it's very close to the first floor, to the office of the prime minister. Because he lives with see, his parents, right? We should make this He clear. lived with, with his parents until March. Then he was exiled to Miami. We will speak about his uh, exile in a minute. But until March, he was sitting in the house and his, uh, he was close to the ear of his father. Uh, but his specific uh, political influence started in 2015. Uh, in the 2015 election, Netanyahu was sure that he's going to, to lose the election. It's uh, well known that uh, during the election day, he called Amnon Abramovich, the commentator of uh, Channel 12, and, and started to scream at him that because of him, he will lose this election. He was sure. But Yer Netanyahu had a different strategy in that election, is what attacking the media and taking uh, Netanyahu to the far right base. He brought Netanyahu all these new media advisors 
that assisted him uh, win this election. And after this election, he told to the people that he's the most genius political mind in Israel. And since then, he started to listen to the advices of his son instead of the advices of the ministers and other, let's say, uh, educated, calm human beings around him. And we can see it all along the way and many, many issues. We remember the Elor Azaria issue when uh, Netanyahu went with the IDF establishment and denounced the shooting soldier and here Netanyahu said it was a mistake. And because of that, Netanyahu uh, called the father of Elor Azaria and fired uh, the defense minister Bogi Elon in the end. We saw it in 2017 in the Temple Mount security crisis. By the way, Yariv Levin, the, I, I can tell you from my sources, Yariv Levin, Netanyahu didn't want him to be the justice minister. He preferred Amir Ochana because Amir Ochana you can control. Yariv Levin is very hard to control. He's a very ideological man. And Yair and his mother uh, demanded Yariv Levin and they won. You know, this is, <laughs> this is also interesting. It's hard to stop and unpack it. But let's go to when you say... He fires ministers. He appoints ministers. Let's, again, go through the facts, what we know, because what has been said in, in these political circles, and, and I'm, I'm wondering if you can corroborate this, again, that the people who are close to Yair are being promoted, people like Shlomo Kari, the minister of communication, people like Amir Ochana, who's the speaker of the Knesset. Is that true? Is that what we've been seeing? Is that tr- is, it's true, and, and Yair gave his father this advice, the most worst advice in the, in the past, uh, maybe, two decades, to fire the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, in, uh, in the end of March. And we saw it in the circumstantial evidence, the people that Yair is promoting all the time, the propaganda minister, Galidi Sital, and I, I hope she will not be insulted. She's the public diplomacy oh, minister, I'm just saying. Okay. And the communications minister, Shlomo Kari, mm-hmm. they supported the firing of Gallant. They called for it during that day, and they supported it after that. And we see uh, Tali Gottlieb, it's, an, it's another uh, parliament member that he supported during the primaries, and she succeeded to get elected to, to the parliament, also supported the firing of Gallant. And that led to uh, this uh, huge mistake of his father. And Yeriv Levin, I can tell you for sure from my sources, Yair demanded Yeriv Levin, he said, he can rely on him, and we cannot rely on Amir Ochana. This is why Amir Ochana, I think it by the way, was published in Channel 12, that Yariv Levin will not be the justice minister during uh, uh, the forming of the government. In the end, the pressure of Yair succeeded, and we saw him becoming a justice minister. And we also see his influence because he, until March, tweeted all the time. You can see immediately how the thing he is tweeting is echoing by the right-wing new media and also by his uh, politician that is flattering and associated with him, like, uh, as I said, Kari and this Italian, etc. So you've explained, Chaim, the basis of his authority, which is proximity to the prime minister, literally, you know, until very recently lived under the same roof, and also because he had given advice that was seen as successful, good advice back in the 2015 election. So that explains why Netanyahu Sr. listens to him. But let's get into what exactly he then hears. And I, in my mind, have long imagined Yair Netanyahu as the, and I've called him on this podcast, the kind of Dauphin figure. And I've had in my mind Donald Trump Jr., who is in some ways ideologically just a sort of extra you know, more high strength version of his father. You've listened to many hours of Yair Netanyahu on his podcast, and and you've looked through all his many many tweets. Social media is massively important for him. Putting it all together, what's your? How would you sketch out the world view of Yair Netanyahu? Um, in the United States, you will just call it alt right. I think there's a huge differences between him and his father. 
he's much, much, much more far to the right from his father. It's a, it's a combination of two things. One is we are a, a victim of a globalist. It's, by the way, it's a very funny. It's an anti-globalist, globalist movement because it's all the time. It's like, yeah. <laughs> reclaiming uh, uh, things. You, you can hear it exactly in the Trump orbit. It's the same propaganda all the time. There's a deep state who's fighting us and they are against the people because the elites, the elites against the people they cannot win the elections in the normal way. So this is, they need for their institutions like the justice system to hunt my father like they, they hunted Donald Trump and they're, they're fabricating felonies against them, etc. And it's also a combination of conspiracy theories. Just for an example, he had a conspiracy theory that um, the United States government is funding the protest in Israel to overthrow his father. And why they want to overthrow his father? Because they want to Iran to have the nuclear weapon. And the, the, his father is the only one who can stop Iran from the nuclear weapon. This is why they're trying to overthrow him. I went down this rabbit hole to understand where exactly this conspiracy is coming. It's very funny because it's a relying on a grant that the United States government gave one of the NGOs in Israel that is part of the demonstrations. And you look when this grant was approved. It was in 2020 when, as you know, the head of the, uh, <laughs> the foreign ministry in the United States was our best friend, Mike Pompeo. So all this uh, conspiracy theory is, is collapsing in a minute, but it doesn't matter. He really believes in it. He really believes that it's a, it's a global network of elites wants to offer for the father because they want to destroy the Jewish people. They cannot do it by themselves like they did at the Holocaust. They need their proxy. Iran is the proxy and his father is standing in the door. And preventing it. And it's all involved, you know, can, every name dropping you can uh, hear, in, like George Soros, of course, is a main figure in his uh, propaganda in his show. And the Israeli generals are getting money from international organizations, and we, the right wing, don't have any money in order to fight them. This is why we need money. This is all on his radio show, what you're quoting. This is not, like, this is what yeah, he's saying. Yeah, he had a radio show mm-hmm. he had. And by the way, his associated to uh, his radio show was uh, Gilad Zvik. Uh, uh, now the, uh, now the he's appointed the spokesman advisor. of the prime minister that caused Israeli international embarrassment after it was. Uh, it's, a, it's also a right-wing conspiracy guy. He's promoting in Israel the conspiracy theory of uh, that he ended with uh, the election fraud in the United States with uh, Donald Trump and the Dominion machines. Didn't go so well in the end. He, was, he had a weekly uh, show with this Gilad uh, Tzvik. There is a promoter's uh, conspiracy theories and uh, attacking uh, the left. And I think it's the main thing when you listen to the show, he doesn't have a disagreement with the left. He hates the left. He sees the left as the enemy. Uh, he likes to quote uh, uh, American, uh, Jewish American conservative uh, radio broadcast, Mark Levin. I also, I admit, I listen from time to time to the Mark Levin show. And it's, it's very similar. It's, it's the, the left is not opposition. The left is the traitors. They are the enemy. It's a war. And we need to, to win this war in order to, to have the Jewish people survive. And it's a, it's a very violent rhetoric. It's a very harsh rhetoric. And we see what is co- happening in Israel. And you see how this world perspective about the, the role of the left in the Israeli society is spreading all along. And now he has also a TV channel, the Channel 14, that is, of course, Netanyahu, here Netanyahu is supporting, is spreading this uh, point of view. So now, as we said, he is not physically in Israel, yeah. right? He is, you called it exile. He's in, in, in Florida. He has been there for a few weeks. No radio show. What happened? Why so, was he pushed aside? So in the last week of March, that um, with the firing of our defense minister, Yoav Gallant, and it's a huge political mistake, Yair Netanyahu also lost a defamation suit. He likes to sue people and likes to be sued, and he's losing all the time. 
he lost uh, half a million uh, shekels on a technical issue with a former uh, journalist and he lost for the former uh, parliament member Stav Shafir and he has many many more lawsuits and as you know money it's a very sensitive issue in Netanyahu family and the end you need to pay the money so from what I understand it was a few conversations that is maybe better for him to relax a little bit and stop tweeting and I don't know uh, what forced him to move to Miami but he's now in Miami he's a sleeping in a friends of the family apartment but this week as we know Netanyahu uh, he, it will be hard for him to be restrained for a long time so he started tweeting this week I can assume in another week or two or three we will have another scandal what Yair Netanyahu tweeted you cannot believe what is going on there used to be stories in the Israeli press all the time about the influence of Sarah Netanyahu, the prime minister's wife. Now it's much more frequent discussion of the role of the son. In the contest, if you like, for the prime minister's ear, who now is more powerful? Has Yair replaced Sarah? Are they allies? As you mentioned in the case of uh, the appointment of the justice minister, just give us, I know it gets, all gets a bit Game of Thrones. Not that I watch Game of Thrones, as uh, Yoni knows. But if we, if I did, this sounds a bit like that. So where, where, where's, what's the power play within the family? Yoni, it's like the dragons in the Games of Thrones. You see, a reference again, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, we'll go with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll go with it. Um, I, I think it's a huge difference between Sarah and Yair. Yair is very ideological. Sarah Netanyahu, if you walk into the room and said, you say to Benjamin Netanyahu, you are the greatest Jew since Moses. You're all set. Yair has an ideology. If you look at this judicial reform, Netanyahu, clearly, all along during his endless uh, public career since 1996 and 2019, in, in, in 2009, pro-justice system, he spoke about how important it is an independent justice system for Israel. And he, he was proud she, that he blocked the same specific law proposals that Yeriv Levine suggested 10 years ago. He blocked it, and now he's agreeing with it. And I think it's two reasons why the Netanyahu, the father, shifted. One is personal trial, but the second is the pressure from Yair and his advice that this is what the base wants. You know, can can we try and talk about? You mentioned the we mentioned the Trump family, and, and Jonathan made that comparison. When we look, like the obvious sort of to, to say, okay, he's like this Donald Trump Jr. How would you make that comparison to, I, the, to the Trump family? I think it's clearly like he's, he's Dan Jr. And I'm sure that Dan Jr. is his role model. Until t- 2017, Trump winning the elections, Ian Netanyahu wasn't a public figure. He didn't tweet. He had a closed Facebook only for friends in a different name to succeed for as a journalist to find what Yair said in his Facebook page was a journalistic achievement. But since the Trump era and Dan Jr., take the rhetoric as his father, and even it was a more extreme version, I think he's trying to copycat him and be like his father's Don Jr. And also, I think, by the way, from time to time in his tweets, praised Don Jr. for his fight for his father. And, and that way, I think it's, it's not like Gerard Kushner. Gerard Kushner was a, a substance guy. You can agree, you cannot agree, but he did a real work. Yair Netanyahu doesn't do any real work to his father. He's just a public opinion guy, a public rhetoric guy, and a public guidance guy. You know, this kind of begs the question, will he eventually go into politics himself? Or does he like this sort of position? I think it's too lazy to go into politics. And it was 
rumors that he will jump in in 2019, uh, but he didn't do it in the end. I don't think he will go into politics. It's an interesting question what he will do after his father will be retiring, if it will ever happen, another 20 years. At the age of 50, it will be interesting to find a job for the first time. But I don't know what he will do after his father era. Um, and it's a question, you know, what Dan Jr., Eric Trump, uh, and Gerard Kushner will do after Donald Trump era. Yeah, no, to find a real I, job, no? I agree. I think it's a fascinating question. It's a kind of real-life succession story. I don't think he will jump into politics. It's too, it's, it's too lazy. I don't see him sitting in, in, in the parliament and the committees and waiting to his turn to speak for four minutes and cutting video to the social networks. And, uh, he's in a better position now. He can sit in Miami and fool his uh, phone. And he, yeah. But, he it, but, but, but Haim, if, he, if he did do it, does he have the skills that his father had? I mean, is he a charismatic figure? Is he a good public speaker? Is he you know, impressive as a figure? No, this is the shortest answer I had in, in this podcast. Just no. It's a very rare to find anybody with a charismatic figure like his father. Uh, and Yair for sure is not a public speaker like his father. He he's wants to be intellectual like his father. He likes to show off how he reads books and he invests a lot of time in his English in order to speak English like his father. His English is, uh, is very good. It's even maybe better than yours, Jonathan. Uh, Nothing is better than Jonathan. Uh, you'll, you'll notice a stony silence coming from me to that suggestion. <laughs> but no, um, I, I know what you mean. I mean, sorry, but just one thing that just comes into my mind as I'm listening to you talking, it is such an interesting thing about Netanyahu himself because he obviously had this massively important relationship with his own father, the historian mm -hmm. Ben-Sion Netanyahu, who really shaped his worldview, this obviously massively significant thing with his brother, Yoni Netanyahu, you know, famously killed in a sort of, as a dying a hero's death in the raid on Entebbe, the psychodrama for years with his wife, Sarah, and now this strange dynamic with the sort of Dauphin's son. I mean, it is a family drama, this story, isn't it? He's a family guy. It's like the movie. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a influenced by his uh, family. You forgot his daughter. That's also an interesting issue, but we're not going to gossip now. And I think uh, in Netanyahu, I think he has uh, this um, historical perception that he's a part of a great family former Rabbi Nathan Milikovsky that immigrated to Israel, and Ben Sion Milikovsky, of course, that became Ben Sion Netanyahu, and his father. He wants to be perceived as an intellectual like his father. Until now, I didn't read anything that is similar to what his father, but he's still young, he can learn, etc. But he, don't, he doesn't have the, the charisma, and mainly, Netanyahu, it's not only about the charisma and the knowledge, and etc. Netanyahu is a very hard-working politician that will work for five o'clock in the morning at 12 a.m., he will sit with people like Ayub Kara for many, many hours as he needed in order to achieve his political goals. I don't think Yair Netanyahu has the ability, the working ability that his father has. And this is, is the major difference between the two of them. Some people research his tweets, what hour is starting to tweet. And you see he has problems of getting up early in the morning, I would say, like that. It's around 12 the day is starting. It's, it's, it's very hard for him to, to get up in the morning. So uh, such a kind of a person that is age 30, re didn't really work in his life, has a problem getting up in the morning. I don't see him jumping into politics and, and winning. 
when he, they are asked, when, when Benjamin Netanyahu or Sarah Netanyahu are asked about Ya'il, they said, look, this is a kid who has been in the spotlight from the age of five, right? His father, even then, when he was first elected, hated or loved. But, you know, he has been in the spotlight. He's been under pressure. He's been attacked. The family has been attacked. So what do you want when he is fighting back? Essentially, that is the main sort of claim that they would make. He's a kid. He's been attacked his whole life. So he's firing back a few shots. What do you want? From yeah, yeah, the evidence is the, the famous story that they repeat all again and again and again, how it was a satire program that... Uh, that made fun of the Netanyahu yeah, they made family, fun of them in 97 when he was, kid, when, right, when he was right. only five or only six, etc. They like to repeat the story. But I don't, I don't think it's an excuse. First of all, to be the son of, a, of the prime minister is a privilege. I can imagine it has some advantages and it's not an excuse to this disgusting rhetoric he has and this extreme right-wing worldview that is promoting. And you see his brother, Avner, that I don't know if he shares exactly the same ideas. You don't hear from him too much. He's studying now in uh, London and next to our uh, friend uh, Jonathan. And you don't hear from him uh, a lot. You, you don't hear this, this despicable uh, uh, claims that comes from Yair about everybody being uh, traitors, about the propaganda media, about uh, the Al Jazeera media, about the media supporting terror, etc. You don't hear from his brother. This may be our last um, question, Chaim, but I'm, this point about him being now in Miami, you've talked yeah. to, but we've made together the comparison uh, with the Trump boys, and his politics that fit into that kind of um, very the alt right in America. What do they make of him? I mean, is he finding a place inside that world? Is he appearing on the shows of, I don't know, the Tucker Carlsons or the Steve Bannons or whatever? Is he beginning to be a figure on the American right, given that he's there, or is his focus or his place still very much in the Israeli right ecosphere? Since he moved to Miami, he didn't give any interviews in the United States. In the past, he was associated with some evangelist organization in South United States. And he gave some interviews to OAN. Um, he's promoting uh, Mark Levine. He promotes uh, every American journalist who supports his father. All the time, they're using, by the way, the right-wing journalist at the United States that uh, promotes his father claims uh, regarding to the trial, for example, as the proof. If even in the United States, they understand that this proof is it's a conspiracy against my father and there's no real evidence, there's no real felonies, etc. It was a, a long, very long Mark Levine show, like a 30 minutes about Netanyahu trial that is a completely fiction from his point of view. And you can see here's Netanyahu fingerprints all around uh, th- that show. Chaim, thank you so much. Thank it was you. fascinating talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Chaim. Well, as promised, this is not a man who pulls his punches, Chaim Levinson, obviously a brilliant observer of the political scene and of Yair Netanyahu in particular. And um, he takes no prisoners. And so that is the undiluted account. Obviously, there will be defenders of the prime minister's son who would take a very, very different view. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we alluded to that the latter part of our conversation. The uh, supporters of the Netanyahu family, of which there are many in this country, and of Yair and of Sarah and Benjamin Netanyahu, would say to you again that this is a kid who has been 
really um, under the spotlight because his father was attacked uh, forever by his detractors. Then Yair sort of picked that up from a very early age. And what he's doing now is just helping his family fight back. Again, we don't do gossip here on Unholy, at least not when the microphone is open. This isn't gossip. This is a very, I think it's very clear from the conversation, this is a very prominent young man in Israeli politics. He has a lot of influence on the politicians around his father and specifically on his father. So I think it was an important sort of opening up that sort of uh, a conversation into really who is he and, you know, what he believes in. And wholly relevant if you're talking about this prime minister, as Chaim uh, Levinson said, Benjamin Netanyahu is a family guy. He has mm-hmm. always said it was the influence of his father and his brother that drove him into politics in the first place. It is absolutely clear from his own long history that he listens to very closely those people in his immediate family. And mm-hmm. therefore, the son of a man who has been prime minister on and off for much of the last 30 years in his Israel is going to be a key figure of influence and therefore obviously merits the kind of attention and scrutiny that Chaim Levinson just gave him uh, in mm-hmm. that conversation. So really fascinating and one obviously we will keep an eye on. So we should ha- hand out some awards, I think. Let's. Um, for chutzpah, we return to uh, an old favourite uh, <laughs> as a subject goes, and I put that in uh, rather large quotation marks. You'll remember uh, we covered on the podcast last year when the school board in the American state of Tennessee moved against Mouse, the graphic memoir, graphic in the sense of comic book style, memoir by Art Spiegelman telling the story of his father, a survivor of the Holocaust. You know, my view, I think it is one of the truly great works of art about the Shoah up there with the Claude Landsman film Shoah or Primo Levi's writings. I think it is a, a truly enduring work of art. Now, a school board in the American state of Missouri is preparing to vote just next week on whether to ban Mouse and make it unavailable in the schools of that district. And this merits a chutzpah award for this reason, which is no parent in the district has challenged the presence of the book. So this is, you know, previous cases, all it took was a concerned parent to say, look, we don't want this book in the in the school library. Not the case this time. Instead, the uh, board of Nixa Public Schools, a district of about 6,000 students within the, and I'm not making this up, Christian County, that's the name of the county in Missouri, is um, having its own meeting. The issue, by the way, in case anyone thinks it's about, you know, heaven forbid, Holocaust denial or anything like it, is the inclusion of nudity in the book, what they call explicit sexual content. There is one image in the book in which a character, and you'll know, you'll remember, people will know that the characters are all animals. So an image really of a naked mouse uh, represents the author's mother after she died by suicide. That is what got the Tennessee district to say it was inappropriate. Now, it seems that is prompted the school board in this district in Missouri to consider whether state laws that uh, are, you know, restrict or ban any sexual depictions should somehow uh, be applied to this book. I mean, you know, anyone who's read the book will know this is 
a book about the Holocaust, it is not in any way uh, any kind, you know, sexual or pornographic book. It's um, it's an absurdity to say it. So a chutzpah award for the Nixa school board. They meet next week. Let's hope they do the right thing. Agreed. Okay, Mensch falls to me, but I don't want any arguments on this one. I am giving it this week to Tom Stoppard, Sir Tom, whose play, uh, Leopoldstadt, about a Viennese family in the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, really, and what happens to that uh, family uh, before and after the Holocaust. That play, which is a remarkable play, we both saw it and loved it, uh, won at the Tony's, best play, and three other awards. We should say, it's not really the classic Tom Stoppard play, right? His trademark has become his wit and his virtuose uh, way to uh, write. This is a different, it's a very personal play. It's a very Jewish play. It's finally him reckoning with his uh, family's history, although this is a Viennese family, his family is Czech, but a lot of it is taken from his own family. We had Howard Jacobson on the podcast a few weeks ago, and that was, you know, with Howard Jacobson, the first word he wrote was about his Jewish identity. With Tom Stoppard, it took about, what, 80 years? This is a beautiful play, and I think it deserves its um, its accolades. This is uh, his fifth time uh, winning the Tony. He won the first one 55 years ago, and I think he's, you know, well-deserved. Very much so. I mean, I think the lateness of it is what makes it to me so fascinating that he came to the Jewish themes. In some ways, you know, Jews who are steeped in this stuff have debated these, some of those issues that are in the play when they were teenagers or in their, uh, you know, in their, uh, in their youth. The idea of a man at this late stage in his life coming to those arguments about Zionism and assimilation and where do Jews belong and where do Jews thrive and prosper and coming to them almost with a sense of freshness and sort of novelty that now he's out. It's a kind of coming out play. Mm. And for a man in his early 80s to be doing that, it's fascinating. So a Mensch Award, to add to his Tony Award, I know which one he'll <laughs> It's his week, more. I think. It is his week. It really and is it, week. We, we should say that a version uh, in Hebrew is uh, now of, of Leopoldstadt is, is now playing uh, Habima, the National Theatre in Israel. It's a, it really is a beautiful play. Yeah. So um, I was going to say that uh, we will be joined by a theatrical night of a different kind next week on Unholy. Uh, We have a very special guest we're extremely excited about, but another night of the British and really uh, global theatre scene uh, joining us next week. I was just going to give a little mention, you know our uh, category there, to Shira Geffen, daughter of the late Jonathan Geffen, the musician, poet, writer, whose death uh, we covered on the podcast not long ago. Uh, Shira Geffen is giving funds from her late father's estate to the Palestinians of Masafar Yatta in the West Bank, a Palestinian village, community, whose land is going to be taken away, the community to be evacuated, emptied out, to make room for an IDF firing range. It's been the centre of protest for a long time. It's caught some global attention. And now Shira Geffen has an Israeli giving uh, money from her late father's estate to those uh, Palestinians uh, struggling for the survival of their community against this state action. So I think a mention for Shira Geffen. Obviously uh, not something that uh, uh, went down well with all of the Israeli community. We should also mention that Shira, during her father's funeral, was wearing a t-shirt that says no democracy with uh, with occupation. Uh, that also got a lot of 
attention. But this is the, this is the will of her father. This, these were the politics of Jonathan Geffen. He was never shy about it. This is her politics, and this is her following through with what he wanted. Okay, so we will. Uh, Sarah, thank you. To Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Attic, and uh, Yair uh, Bashan, also uh, Roni Harniv, uh, for helping us out this week. And we shall meet next week, Jonathan. We shall, with that special guest. We'll see you. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.